thanks for joining us today. This is Aaron Ivy. Welcome to the Behind the Curtain podcast. I have with me today an investor who I've been working with for about three months. It's been a long time. Something like that. I'd like to introduce Mac to you. Mac flew in a couple of days ago from California, and I've really enjoyed getting to know Mac for the last two and a half, three months, and apparently said something that was attractive enough to have him fly out to Memphis to sort of experience the city for himself. So... uh Thank you for coming to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a, a lot of fun. Yeah, for the listeners out there, just want to let you know, Mac is a normal person, and I and I almost hate to say that because Mac is actually extraordinary. He's had an amazing history or career in banking and in finance. He is a constant researcher of trends of concepts that help investors move forward in their investment process. And he's actually impressed me so much because he's come to me with a lot of research that he's done. And he has a very colorful current career as well that we're going to talk about a little bit. So, Mac, speaking of careers, what have your careers been? Like, what's led you to have an interest in real estate? I've always had a passion for real estate. I think it started when I started looking at structures and just liked the way they look. And I always wanted to, frankly, live in a big house, right? Not necessarily a crazy mansion, but I just wanted to have something bigger something a little more where I can be free and be able to do what I'd like to do. So I think that started my initial interest in it. In college, one of the electives I took was real estate principles, which is the initial course to get your real estate sales license. And so that introduced me to the concepts, to the terms, and then there's continuing education after that. And I just took a liking to it and it was very easy for me. I never got into real estate sales, although I probably should have, but I didn't. Still can. Yeah. Banking showed up at that time and I went that path. So, and that kind of leads me into, you know, what my career started. So I started as a bank teller and moved up very quickly into being a personal banker for one of the big five. Uh, they're still around today, this bank. And this was prior to the financial collapse, prior to Dodd-Frank. Things were very good. Yeah. Things were very good at the time. So I was young. I was 20, 21 by the time I was a personal banker. And we were doing large loan volumes on a monthly basis in the millions, each one of us. And our mortgage broker out of our branch was doing in the hundreds of millions origination. So it was very busy. It was very good. It was very tumultuous, to say the least. And there's a lot of stories behind that. Yeah. And you had mentioned in the car yesterday, some stories. You're very respectful, you know, of the people that were participating in these things. But you and I spoke about, you know, some movies and some depictions of, mm -hmm. of what, the, you know, the corporate world was like, you know, as far as like interpersonal relationships and maybe some unethical behavior. And you basically let me know that you witnessed all of it, which I think is extremely interesting you know looking back at that point in history pre-crash post 9 11 pre-crash i mean we were experiencing a massive boom california real estate was just blowing up and our company was growing at the same time there were a lot of people that were doing cash out refinance and were taking advantage of what is considered now to be normal interest rates and that's mm -hmm. that's a funny juxtaposition we're going to talk about a little bit because these interest rates really aren't terrible people are just they are so used to paying 2.95, right, you know? Right. So yeah, the stories that you told me really gave me some, or lit some credibility to what I've seen in television and film. And I was just at the very bottom of it. You know, what, what we see in television and film, that happened way above me. Right. You know, I was just a lowly personal banker, opening checking accounts, 
doing seconds on people's homes, lines of credit, loans, and then certain types of loans where you advance part of it and fix part of it. And But yeah, we saw a lot of it happening and there was a lot going on our end too that has never been depicted in media or in film, which maybe we could someday, but there's more story there too, as, as we talked about yesterday. So Yeah, I think it was a really strange time. And I think that the people that were trying to process what happened, during that time, they really wanted to move past it. Probably one of the most interesting things that you had told me, and I'll just sort of end your experience based on this story, which I found very interesting, is that there was a probably middle range executive mm -hmm. that ended up taking responsibility for many people that were above that person mm -hmm. and is currently serving jail time. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a major national bank name. Like, yeah. I mean, we're not going to say it on the podcast, but... If we were to say it, you know, people would be say, oh, yeah, I heard all these stories about that particular bank. If we said the name, anyone listening would go, oh, yeah. Yeah. Even if they didn't work in it, even if they didn't, they would they would know yeah. right away. And yes, that that story. I mean, I sent you the article on it. Yeah. And uh, we remember this person very well. Like I said, I didn't know this person directly, but they were on the C-suite list. And there were people above this person that a lot of us felt, frankly, you know, they were the ones who were part of this also. And they, you know, walked away with their parachutes. Yeah. But it is what it is. While the rest of us got either fired, canned, or, you know, run out for whatever reason. You stop. You don't want to participate. You feel uncomfortable. They give you the invite to the party. You say no. And then suddenly you're persona non grata type thing. You know, right. all that stuff's very real. And yeah. and it, it extended into another industry that I was in after the fact, after the banking industry. Very similar, but not so much. So... We're going to talk about financing mm -hmm. in a coming episode. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. And I want to touch back into your banking experience because I really feel like a large reason why you're here looking at me today mm. is because you were immersed in banking and you were immersed in financing. Obviously, you had an interest in that, but I think that that time really sort of molded and shaped your perception of what is possible. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's just such a really important point. What is possible is what investors should be considering. Correct. You know, they, that's what they should be looking at. Like, what can I achieve? Mm -hmm. Right. And so often, you know, what we see investors do is they'll freeze right before, you know, making the decision to buy their first house or they get frightened by a banker that says, no, no, we need this documentation or we need to show this, these reserves in order for you to move forward. And so they don't think outside the box. So one of the things that was really made me curious about you and your your direction that you're taking right now, even though we haven't like made the jump yet, it's that you see the possibility in non-traditional financing. And so we're, we're definitely going to get to that. One of the questions that I've got is what made you decide that you were done with the sort of spreadsheet that we were working on together and you wanted to actually fly out? Like what led to that decision? It kind of a culmination of things. When I first started looking at markets, other than what I'm used to dealing in, I had specific criteria that I was looking for. I wanted to be out of the areas that I was. It needed to be in a certain price range. I was looking for opportunity for appreciation in the future, you know, on a 10-year time scale. And I was looking for cash flow now. And so there were several markets that I had considered and, and would still consider and am considering. Do you want to do you want to share those other markets? I'm, I'm curious. We haven't yeah. talked about this yet. So Memphis was one of them, Dallas-Fort Worth, Detroit. Cleveland area and some places in Pennsylvania. So we're the only Sun Belt, so to speak, the only southeastern market that you're considering. 
At the time, More yes. or less, okay. There was some maybe outside of Orlando, but I didn't really have it on the list. And a lot of it had to do with price range and comfortability with the area. And frankly, sometimes you just see something and you go, I want to look at that, right? Yeah. You just get a feeling and then you start reaching out. And so this is where it ended up working. Yeah, I'm so pleased that you reached out to us. You know, there are some massive companies out there. I don't know if you ran across any of them that are looking to sell, you know, real estate either from Memphis, you know, Memphis real estate from Memphis, or like you and I were talking about Jeff Bezos, Amazon related company that was the basically like roof stock and, and or something to that effect. Mm. And you were talking about how few uh, properties were available through that company. And that's a very interesting comment that you made as well, that it, it appears that these large companies are not buying, obviously, as much as they were. A lot of coming soons. Yeah. On that website and very few available shares to buy. Right. So that was kind of interesting. And it seems like, you know, if you look at real estate news and articles, they want to lead people into buying into REITs. They want to lead people into buying shares. There's a lot of securitization of real estate these days. A lot of big names. I'm not going to say any, but uh, that are on YouTube and they on TV. They want to own and then sell you shares. There's nothing that is pushing the individual to invest for themselves. And I I kind of look at that kind of funny. I mean, I get these people want to sell a product, but there's no real education to the individual to how do you do it yourself. And the ones that are doing that teaching are kind of, I wouldn't say they're frowned upon, but they're not as advertised, not as promoted as heavily. And I don't want to buy into someone else's project. I want to be a a part of that project. You know, not saying I don't want to partner with people, but... I don't, I don't want to buy it like a stock. Right. You know, I want to be in control of it. I want to make the decision on what I buy. I want to get the tax benefits and I want to have the pride of ownership. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm here because it's, I could very easily buy into a REIT or one of these things and, Absolutely. Get, and get the same return or, or, or pretty close to it without any of the work, without any of the headache. I mean, the, the fees that, you know, any sort of fund or REIT that you would buy into the profit, I know, you know, this, but for our listeners, the profit that's there, let's say that you wanted to own real estate. And so you had the option of buying one, two, three main street, you Mm -hmm. know, for $125,000, you understood your financing to where it was going to be, you know, profitably cash flowing in year two, let's say worst case scenario, the tax benefits that you get, the single person ownership, right? The the operation, you're the one in control of all the operations versus shares of a REIT for $125,000 where you're having to pay annual maintenance, you're mm. having to pay transaction fees. Inside of the REIT itself, there's a lot of the profit that's taking out of that. It's kind of like the difference between buying into a mutual fund, mm-hmm. you know, or, or putting your money in a mutual fund or buying the individual stocks. Right. You know, there's so there's more volatility with the stocks and more risk, but there's much more profit realization with the stocks. Exactly. And it's it's more liquid too. Yeah. You know, you buy direct uh, real estate, you can choose when and what to do with it at any given point. You buy into someone else's program, you're stuck to their timeline, right? And it may not be the best for you. So for me, I want to be more actively involved. And because I like to research and follow the trends and everything, I feel I would better manage my own asset than someone else. And if I falter or fail, then it's on me and I can accept that. But here's the thing. I have met a boatload of property owners that don't care, Mm. right? And hanging out with you, like you care, you care a lot about people 
And so the most successful investors that I work with are people that care about their residents. It's people that care about the contractors that are in the property. It doesn't take that much more time and energy to be a decent person. Right. Right. And you're much more than a decent person. And so uh, your uh, temperament and your skill set, honestly, and your career history and your experience, all of these things are going to lead to you being a phenomenal landlord. I wish that you'd write that book, you know, like <laughs> how to be a decent landlord. Maybe someday. <laughs> and I'll join you with it. Yeah, we'll you know, we'll write it together. So we saw some of the city yesterday. Mac and I started a spreadsheet, I guess about 60 days ago. I am so sorry that I was lax in the middle probably 20, 30 days in like acknowledging it and looking into it. But you did a lot of your own homework mm -hmm. for the listeners out there. Mac shared this spreadsheet with me. And so we were able to see live changes that it was an excellent way for us to remain creative in the process. We used colors and you, I think had like 20 columns on your spreadsheet. So there was a lot of information there and you really processed the reality of these properties that were available. And what's really interesting listener is that right about, I guess it was, you were like, Hey, I want to come out to Memphis, but you didn't really pull the trigger on that and make the decision until we had processed probably two rounds of properties. And, oh yeah. And At least so like what's something in there you were like, I got to go. Like, what was it? I have this principle that we never pull the trigger on anything unless we see it, touch it, smell it, mm -hmm. you know? And that comes from partly my career after banking. I was in the auto business sales and then finance as well. Like awesome. We call F and I. And we always told the customer, you have to drive the car. You can't buy something without driving it. I can't buy a house without walking it maybe two or three times. I can't buy a pair of pants or shoes without putting them on. It doesn't make sense. You know, there's so many regrets if you don't do that. And you might say, hey, it looks good on in a picture. It looks good maybe in front of me. But until I walk it, wear it, drive it, smell it, touch it, feel it. I don't know for sure if it's going to work. You don't know it. And so many times we've done that. All of us tried on that pair of pants. We walked that house, drove that car and you realize this isn't going to work for me. There's something about it that doesn't work. And it could be something major and it could be something tiny, but you have to get out there. You have to try it. And that's the same thing when it comes to investing in a market. If I'm going to invest in a market that I don't live in or I can't get to, I have to go there. You know, even if I can get to it, I still have to go there. So all of what we did is for not if I come out here and it doesn't work. You know, I, yeah. I don't I don't feel comfortable if I don't come out here and discover for myself if it's the right place and I start buying, I start investing, whatever we end up doing. I'm going to regret it if something fails, because maybe I could have discovered, hey, maybe I shouldn't have never pulled the trigger here from the get-go had I just spent a week and come out or maybe some of these things could have been mitigated had I spent the week and come out and I would have known do this not do this whatever the case is yeah so one of the things that's really interesting just kind of hit me as you were conveying that is most investors do not visit Memphis they just mm -hmm. they don't come out and they rely on us as realtors to do a lot of the homework for them so I have probably visited 1500 houses in my career, which never went to an offer. Or if they did go to an offer, we went to the inspection period and we never made it past the inspection period. We withdrew. So uh, hopefully one of the things that you experienced with me yesterday is that I love 
testing the market. Like what you came out here to do is what I do every week. You know, sometimes three or four days a week, mm-hmm. you know, go, going and taking a look at these houses, looking at the information, looking at the data, looking at what the seller is presenting. Is this enough information? Reading between the lines, uh, considering cash flow versus purchase price as far as the, you know, the monthly rental amount, like really helping investors see because they're not going to come out what the opportunities are. So I really enjoyed yesterday and we're going to head out again today. Yesterday, just to, to give some context for where we were in the city, we saw parts of Northwest Memphis, parts of the Western part of Memphis, mainly lower income or, or more blue collar neighborhoods. And the average price range in those areas were anywhere from like you found one for 11,000 that ended up being purchased probably should be raised, but the average purchase price was somewhere between 30 and 90. Mm -hmm. Just regarding that neighborhood, what were your initial takeaways? Like, could you convey some of the experiences that we had when we were driving? We had some, we had some interesting experiences, very memorable. I'm still optimistic about certain areas, maybe not as a new investor to mm-hmm. Memphis, or maybe as a more experienced. And I think the first house that we looked at, you said exactly what I thought, you know, when we're in this house is the way that we would make this work is if we bought the whole neighborhood and then rebuilt it, right. you know, and that's obviously not something that we could do right now, but that I think when the time comes, we could do something like that. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful area, beautiful neighborhoods and we could really bring up the standard of certain areas, you know, and it would be really nice. That's something I'm, I'm passionate about and not realistic at this time. I think what it did is it, it, it kind of, I think you wanted me to experience this is focus more on the areas where we think we can have a better opportunity, right? Uh, yeah. More realistic. And it also enlightened me to a lot of things too, which was really interesting. Some of the neighborhoods that you have, we don't have anything like that where I'm, I'm from. So it's, it's, or it's very few and far between, you know, it, it's not that way. It's just very interesting to see everything and to get understanding. And it's definitely helping me in my journey and with the knowledge I need to invest here. It's so funny that you should mention that lots of investors will call and, uh, or email and they will begin to, um, collaborate with us on investigating Memphis and the possibilities in Memphis. And they see these properties that are priced between 10 and $50,000. And Richard remembers t- 10 years ago, I mean, 12, 15 years ago, we were able to find really quality properties that were in the 60 to $75,000 range. And that same property isn't out there anymore. In mm. fact, for the people that bought properties between seventy-five and hundred thousand dollars between oh nine and thirteen, they made out like bandits. Mm-hmm. I mean, just tremendous amount of appreciation. Obviously, the factors were geared more in that direction, just this absurd growth in value. But we don't know when that's actually gonna end. I mean, we we haven't seen the the net result of this year yet, you know. We were in some neighborhoods that had good opportunity. The reason that you had not experienced that probably where you're from, I think is that there is more of a capacity by either the city or the people that live in the city, you know, the government or the residents, citizens to improve those neighborhoods. So some of the neighborhoods we saw yesterday, neither the city nor the people that live there have the capacity the means to be able to improve those areas. And so we saw some areas where you would really have to invest your care into that neighborhood 
in order to improve it. And then one of the points that I brought up yesterday is Memphis is a little bit like a jungle in certain parts. You know, it's very wet, very green, lots of trees. And so the in these neighborhoods, you have to be vigilant or the jungle is going to come back and take it over mm. again. You know, the, the trees are going to grow up. The, the bushes are going to grow up. The foot traffic is going to come. We actually saw a very interesting house yesterday that we were very interested in. And then we drove up and what did we see? There were several reasons as to why I would be interested in it, right? But then when we drive down the block... You know, now the reasons are not to. We pull down, <laughs> we, we come in off the main drag down the street and the the gatekeeper, if you want to call it that, is there and immediately says something to us as we're driving by and takes out his phone and starts to take pictures. And then we get to the actual property that we're interested in and there's clearly a, a union meeting or whatever you want to call it there. You know, the, the heads of state are there discussing their uh, old news and new news, right? So we're like, no, this is not going to work. You know, let's just keep it moving. So that was very interesting. Yeah, we saw neighborhood bosses as mm-hmm. like one guy in particular, you noticed his uh, his clothing and you mm-hmm. were like, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the neighborhood bosses were there. And uh, and so we just, I, I was... <laughs> I just told him, I was like, do you want to see, do you want to do that? And he was like, no, no, let's just keep going. Yeah. An interesting thing about Mac too, is that he has a knowledge just from being in California, the various gangs that are out there. And so he was pointing out various uh, tags, you Mm -hmm. know, that were on buildings that were on fences or whatever. And, um, and so it was insightful. Now, again, for the listener, I want to make sure that you understand that this is only a small portion of the city of Memphis, probably. I would even just say 10 to 15% of our city. Memphis is a, is a large geographical area. Like, were you surprised at how big the city is for the population? You know, I, what I was surprised is how things change very quickly from one area to the next. It's big, but it seems, like I said, it seems, I wouldn't say close together, but things change quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, you turn one street and it's a totally different neighborhood. You turn another and it's something else. The city where I live, it's more, I wouldn't say overlapping, but it's a smoother transition between areas. You know, we don't have such highs and lows, I guess Gradual. you could say. Yeah. In Memphis, you can have high six-figure, low seven-figure homes, one block from where someone has a flag posted, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's banner is flying and you need a permission slip to go down that street. So what I'm used to, it's more smoothed out right? from that regard. Yeah. That was new to me. But... The bones of the city, driving around, the way the landscape looks, the way it feels, I like it. Yeah. You know, I've been to some places where you think it's a nice place and you just, you get, eh, it doesn't, I don't like it. Just like walking a house or driving a car. You think, hey, it looks good. You drive, you're like, it's not for me. Maybe it's for somebody else. It's just not for me. So, you know, one of the things I think that we haven't like crystallized this, you know, like in a phrase, but one of the things about Memphis that's very attractive to me is that there are actually more opportunities than there are people. There are a lot of people that live in this city. Mm -hmm. There are more employment. There are more art, music opportunities. There are more expressive opportunities. There are more creative opportunities. They're just out there. And I think forgive me for saying this, but I feel like our city is a little bit spoiled in having all of these possible possibilities at their fingertips. Now I would say one of the things I liked about driving around yesterday is you didn't just show me houses. We did look at a lot of houses, but in between you took me to a lot of historical types of things, right? We saw the hotel where MLK yeah, the was Lorraine shot hotel. Yeah. and that was really nice and got pictures. 
we went downtown on the main drag and I said something to you that this could be a, like another city that's hustling and bustling, mm-hmm. you know, with young people that have money that like to spend money like, you know, to your point, there's a lot of opportunity here. And it seems like, and maybe you can attest to this, and I don't mean this in any negative way, but the people in the city don't realize how much opportunity there is. And so it's taking someone like me from outside to come in and say, there's a lot of opportunity here. I mean, I'm going to take advantage of this and I, not, not in a negative way, but sure. why not? Right. You know, and it's only going to help the city in my opinion. It's yeah. only going to help the, the people here. There, there's a lot of opportunity here. I don't think a lot of the locals notice it, right? Because you get set in your ways. You kind of, you know, you blur the lines of, of where you are because you're used to it, right? There's a huge opportunity here, you know, and it's, and it's something I want to be a part of. That's awesome. Well, we want you to be a part of it as well. Why don't we close out our episode for now? I'm glad that our listeners have had a chance to get to know you and a little bit of your your optimism. On our next episode, we're just going to talk about some of the opportunities that you have seen here, and we're going to juxtapose that with the previous neighborhoods that we were discussing. Thank you for listening to Behind the Curtain Podcast, your real-world guide to real estate investment and property management. Be sure to subscribe at BehindTheCurtainPodcast.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Enterprise Property Management's real estate services, please visit us on the web at epmrealestate.com. This has been a Sound Ideas Group production for Enterprise Property Management, Inc.